The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Uh, You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author Susan Wiggs. Family tree. Hey, thank you the for having me. The most touching journey is in coming home, and no one else can evoke all the uncertainty and joys of those life passages, quite like the author Susan Wiggs. In Family Tree, she introduces us to Annie Rush, a successful TV producer who seemingly has it all, but in losing it all and starting from scratch, she discovers the true measure of her heart and soul. Susan, a Harvard grad and winner of a Rita Award from the Romance Writers of America, is the number one New York Times bestselling author of more than 50 novels. Welcome to the show, Susan. Nice to have you on this morning. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I know you've been asked, uh, the, usually, the, and as I read some of your interviews, uh, some of the, the first question people ask you is, you know, what inspired you to write your books? And one of your answers was uh, this endless curiosity about the world. So I'm going to start with that. I, um, the endless, what is your endless curiosity about the world, I guess, in how does that refer or how to, uh, in terms of how you were in, uh, inspired to write this book, Family Tree? Oh, that's a that's a great way to start because this is this book is a new start for me in a couple of ways. Even though I've written many many books over the last thirty years, I actually sold my first book um, this month thirty years ago, um, and endless is a is a good way to describe it because it's a constant process of discovery and family tree in particular is new to me in that it's um, a new publisher William Morrow Books is my new publisher for this book it's my first one with them and so it's a real shot in the arm to be working with um, you know a new team of people and I really became absorbed in a couple of different aspects that sneaked into the book. You know, the the initial jumping off point of this book is a really kind of horrible, dramatic accident. I'm always wary when I'm writing along about a character and everything is going right in her life. She appears to have the perfect life and the perfect husband and the perfect relationship and the perfect job and so I know that there's just something around the corner that is going to throw her for a loop and so indeed in Family Tree that's the case and so, so the, that the is what leads tree, like me you're talking about this is the case of dramatic accident like this is uh, or yeah. catastrophic I, I got very crisis. curious how about how do you recover from that how do you how do you put your life back together after it is shattered um, both literally and figuratively and so that was the my journey as the writer um, going into that world of um, 
um, first of all, the hospital world, and then the world when you recover and how you get your life back after something that, like that happens. And so, Susan, how does that reflect what's happening in your own life? Like, not just maybe not just in this novel, but other books that you've also written. Because you said this is a little bit different in this catastrophic, dramatic beginning to the book. Does that reflect anything that's happening in your own life or your own experiences at the time? Yes, I'm going to be brutally honest with you and say that um, I was writing this book last year um, during a time of enormous and multifaceted crisis in my own life. Um, what had happened, well, I'm, I'm in charge of my two elderly parents, they're both in their 80s, and my dad was extremely ill with Parkinson's disease, and um, he did, while I was writing the book, he did pass away, and in the meantime, as he's falling apart, my, my mom had a massive heart attack and needed open heart surgery, and my husband was working overseas um, doing um, work in Cambodia um, for an NGO, so I was all by myself in the house, and, you know, shuttling back and forth between heart attacks. Oh, I also got served with a lawsuit by my ex-husband who wanted more alimony, but that's a whole different novel. That's another novel. <laughs> I had a perfect storm. It was like the trifecta of woe. I told Jerry, my, my lovely current husband, um, I told him uh, everything converged during the writing of this book. And so um, the reviews that have come in, the early reviews always mention what an emotional book this is. And um, what was happening in my life probably got, you know, took me to the edge of my own emotions, and that probably is reflected in the book. And um, I actually wrote most of the hospital scenes while I was sitting in a hospital, and so that's why they have a very uh, raw, realistic feel to them, including... Um, you know, uh, most people um, I didn't understand until, you know, I entered that world, you don't always get to just leave the hospital and go home. You often have to leave the hospital and go to a rehab place where they retrain you how to walk and how to talk and things like that. And so I became very um, involved in that world as well um, due to what was going on with my mom. So anyway, it was um, like, um, you know, like... My book itself, the the whole year had a, a you know a bittersweet conclusion. You know, we did lose you know, my dad, but we kept my mom, and all is well with the world. So it's amazing. Um, it was a journey to write the book and a personal journey as well. Um, that's quite a story. Both stories are quite a story, and and obviously you're on your personal story, but. How do you get, I mean, many people, I'll say most people, when they get in a situation, say like you just described, and unfortunately a lot of us have been in those kinds of situations, we're not able to sit there and, and write a book and be able to take, the, have, first of all, have the strength and the focus and to be able to do all of that, like in the midst of all that's happening to you, your parents are sick and your husband's suing you for divorce, you know, we go home and drink a bottle of wine or do something else, but not as productive of what you <laughs> Oh, there was plenty of that, I do have to say. Uh, however, one thing that I, that I, I don't know if it was just my natural tendency, but one thing that I do when I'm working through anything personal, good or bad, is I write things down. And I think I always have ever since I was, you know, able to pick up a pen. And so the book was my one safe 
place that I was able to go in my mind and be in complete control. You know, they say what I tell them to say, and they go where I tell them to go. And so in that sense, it's, it was very empowering and very therapeutic to be able to um, write this novel. And it was also very safe. I didn't feel like, um, you know, th- there were any threats lurking around the corner. I think that's important what you said, control, because when you feel like your life is sort of catapulting out of control, this is an area of control. You can, you know, whatever's happening externally, you've got control internally with your talent and for being able to do this, to be able to sit down and write. Um, so what, were you surprised, like, when, when you finished the, the, the book and the responses that you got? Um, oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I would say, um, to date, probably the most um, moving reply that I got was from a librarian, and he was reviewing the book for his patrons um, in Texas. I'd never heard of this gentleman, but he wrote me a personal note, and he said... You know, he's never connected so personally with a novel before, and there were, you know, passages that were just unforgettable, and they became a part of him. And it was all because of what was going on in his personal life. And I realized that um, I wrote one book, but every reader who reads it reads a different book because they're bringing their own their own lives and their own sensibility to that book and, um, you know, creating a unique experience. And that's kind of the magic of reading is we all, we all read a different book, even though it's the same book. That must be a high for you because you're right. I mean, we have our own filter, our own experiences, whatever we do come to bear on what we read or whether we go to a museum or travel or whatever it is. So, because you do talk about, I've, in reading in some of your other interviews, about how important or what a, I guess, uh, maybe you don't say hi, but how, like, it's so, you feel so good about your readers and the people who are, I mean, because you you you're very prolific and, like, what you're able to give to them and bring to them and share with them and, and change them in whatever ways you're able to do that. So um, I've never heard that quite said about, you know, how important the readers are to them. Well, I think that reading is um, underrated as a creative process. I think reading is very creative. You know, I I hear from people who say, oh, you're so creative, I wish I was. And I find out that they read, you know, two books a week. And I think that um, we don't sense reading as a creative process, but it it is very involving in a way that um, no other activity that I can think of is in the sense that, um, we're bringing so much of ourselves into the story. So um, I, I love, uh, you know, not all writers will, would say this, but I, I really love uh, connecting with readers online. And um, it can be a, a great distraction, but it's also um, really gratifying to hear from people personally about the books that they're reading and the thoughts that they're thinking. And so... Um, that's why my, my Facebook page is very busy. My website's very busy, SusanWiggs.com. And, and um, I hear from readers really literally all over the world, and it's so gratifying. And they are so creative that I even created a um, – every Wednesday um, there's a post on Facebook called You're the Writer. And I pull out one profound, interesting thing that a reader has said in the past week and, um, and post it for everybody to talk about. So that's a little feature that we do on Facebook. 
That's SusanWiggs.com. You're the writer. That's great. So it becomes a whole interactive website when you do that, right? I mean, you really it are It is. It is. Yeah. It makes it a lot less lonely. Gosh, you know, I started writing 30, I started publishing 30 years ago, and back then you were really, you know, in the dark about everything. You were, there was no, you know, internet to, to rush to, to distract yourself. And so in a way it was a lot more isolating. I feel very much more connected now. So Susan, when you started writing, you said more than 30 years ago, and I, and I think I said in the beginning you graduate, you were a Harvard grad. What was it like? Were you writing when you were at Harvard? Yes, I was. And um, I was actually writing when I was two and a half years old. And, and I know this because uh, my mother, God love her, she has um, saved samples of my work and um, dated them. And there were actually markings that I made as a toddler that I would, I would, I of course have no memory of this, but I would make the marks and I would tell my mother, now write this down. And I would tell her the story and God love her, she would write it down. And it was always a rambling narrative about a girl being chased or something like that. And so she nurtured me from the start. So I have to say, I'm a lifelong writer. I know many writers who come to it, you know, you can come to writing at any stage of your life, but I was one of those very early bloomers in that. But, of course, I did um, write all through high school and college and graduate school and ultimately um, got that call to um, publish my first book in 1986. Um, it was a phone call. There was no email, you know, back then. And um, it, it was that phone call that literally, um, you know, changed my life in one phone call. And but so the one it's been phone call kind of a wild be- ride. Yeah, I'm interrupting because when you say that one phone call, uh, it sounds a little bit like, oh, wow, I wrote, I, you know, I wrote something, sent it in, I got the phone call. That's not quite what happened. <laughs> oh, boy, don't, don't yeah. I wish it was that yeah. easy. I mean, what what came before that phone call is me sending out manuscript after manuscript, typed on a typewriter, um, and getting rejection after rejection. No, thank you. No, thank you. Um, I didn't even, I wasn't even able to find somebody to represent my work. Um, what you, what, what you really need ideally in, in publishing is a literary agent. They're sort of like a real estate agent for books. You know, they, they will, um, market your books so that you can focus on what you're good at, which is the writing. But I, didn't even find someone who could work with me on that. And so I was literally being my own representative. And so the phone call that came in um, was preceded by many, many, many rejections in quick succession. But the one that changed my life was um, a woman named Wendy McCurdy. She's still in publishing. Um, You know, I just actually was able to meet up with her and say hi to her this summer. And she said, we like your book and we want to publish it. And, you know, from that day on, I've, I've written and published a book or two every year. That's quite a story. That's, a, that's an amazing story. I, I, in your story, I wonder if, this, if it, it is repeat, it's not repeated that often, obviously. And today, I, you know, a lot of, they criticize a lot of the kids, the millennials, the Gen Xs, um, because they do have the Internet and they are texting, and, and, and so am I, but uh, that they don't know how to write, that they can't even write a full sentence or even a business letter. So, you know, as a writer, uh, can you comment on that? Like, is, do you think that's true? I, I'm probably, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm probably hypersensitive 
to language and, and, you know, usage and spelling and nuance and things like that. And so it's, it does frustrate me on the one hand to see, you know, the quick messaging that just zaps around like lightning all over the world and, um, you know, with not a ton of thought behind it. But on the other hand, I love the instant nature of it, the spontaneous nature of it. And Annie, the main character in Family Tree, is definitely a millennial. She's um, in her early 30s, I think, or she's just 30. And um, she definitely comes from that world. And I have to say, some of the smartest, most admirable people and writers that I know come from that. And so I think there's something about a writer or something about actually a striver, somebody who, you know, grabs onto a goal and goes for it that is just always going to reward excellence. And so I have high hopes for writing and publishing, you know, in any format. But I absolutely do understand what you're saying. And, yes, I have... um, had my cringing moments, you know, when I get a certain message that has a certain tone or, you know, single letters that are supposed to substitute for a whole word. (laughs) So I definitely get what you're saying there. Yeah. So I guess there is a balance, like you said, I mean, in, in being a good writer, but at the same time having the opportunity to do things quickly, which is great, which is in, you know, instant messaging, that kind of thing. What about your own, do you have a daughter? I do. I have a grown daughter and a granddaughter. So my daughter is, um, she's 31, Elizabeth is. And we actually wrote a book together. We wrote a a funny memoir about planning her wedding back in 2010 um, called How I Planned Your Wedding. And that was great fun. And I greatly admire my daughter and her husband and the people in her generation um, for how hard they have to work in a totally different way than I did when I was their age. You know, Um, they're definitely strivers, but at a whole different level. I, I can't imagine the way that she's raising her daughter um, basically with her phone, you know, talking to the caregiver and talking to the school and things like that. It's just, it's remarkable. It, in the, and on the one hand, it's very liberating. Um, you're able to keep track of your kid in a way that we never could. Um, but on the other hand, um, it's there are parts of it that just feel very mechanical, and so um, I'm a big admirer of the way my my daughter and my family are are sort of fashioning their lives around um, the modern world. And again, that has to come into any book that I would write that has a contemporary setting. Um, you know, you can't make up a problem that is easily solved by a phone call or something like that. <laughs> so, in the world of fiction, it creates challenges as well. Yeah, so you have to incorporate that technology. I'm always interested in, you know, mother-daughter relationships. I mean, I've grown up in a family of men, and I have three boys, and uh, I am a daughter, but I don't have a daughter. And I always wonder about uh, someone like you uh, who is very successful, who has a daughter, like the competitive aspect. Is I mean, does your daughter... You know, c- compete with you, or is it is that any of the issues that um, you've you had know to what? deal with? You know what? I'm I'm so I'm so interested that you asked that because um, I've had a conversation with my daughter before where she's she does write and she's a very good writer and she's actually written a novel. It's not published yet, um, but as we were writing the um, how I planned your wedding, as we were writing that together. Um, 
she said something to me, and it wasn't that we were in competition, but she said, you have set the bar so high. You know, how can I, and we were talking actually about her novel, you have set the bar so high that I wonder if I would even bother to go that direction. And so, of course, I talked her out of it. You know, everybody has their own sort of talent. And so I think in a family, especially a functional relationship, which I like to think I I enjoy with my daughter, um, it's not so much competition as, as mutual support and engagement. You know, she definitely, definitely takes pride in my you know, and what I've done, um, and of course, I have the all the parental and grand parental pride in in her accomplishments in life as well. But I do know writers who've told me, um, you know, it's hard when you succeed at something that somebody else in your family has wanted so badly. And I've not had that situation in my life, but I definitely know people who have. Well, it sounds like well, you and your daughter. I mean, the one thing is the you communicate with. with with one another. I mean, she's talking about when if she can say you set the bar too high, then that's a, yes. you can talk about yes, it. Thank you. That's a that's yeah. a really great point. Is um, and and it's a great point in fiction as well. If something is on your mind, find a way to say it. Now, Vanessa, this is your daughter, but now you and you're talking about this is your husband, and I'm curious mm-hmm. if your second husband or maybe more, I yeah, don't know. Jerry but is my, my second and final and second awesome Second and husband. final. <laughs> <laughs> well, given that, uh, I'm always curious as to what he does. does he, is he yeah, a, does, well, you yeah. know what? He's amazing. He's, he's so creative in such a different way. He's an apparel designer, actually, um, and is um, pretty well known in his field for designing... Um, um, adventure apparel, you know, the Gore-Tex seam-sealed jackets and climbing gear, and, um, you know, he designs whatever his clients assign to him. And so um, it's so different. We both work um, from home. He has a studio on the property, and it's so different. You'll, you'll come, you know, to my little writing studio, which is basically just a chair with a notebook and a pen, because I write everything in longhand, and then you'll go over to his studio, and there are dress forms and a cutting table and machines and two screens with patterns on them. And um, so it's just such a, um, such a contrast. And he has the, um, the incredible luck to be able to listen to audiobooks as he works. So I'll walk in and it will be a little surreal because I'll, I'll hear one of my books on tape or one of my audiobooks, they're not on tape actually, uh, one of my audiobooks playing in the background while he's, um, you know, designing a pattern for one of his clients, so it's very fun. Two creative people, you know, different formats. You know, as you're describing, I'm picturing it as you're describing it, obviously. You know, someone to do a documentary, a short documentary on the two of you sitting in your, your room as you're describing it, uh, creating what, you know, two very different kinds of things, but... No, I would love that, and and, um, as it turns out, um, uh, my stepson, Jerry's son, Quinn, is a graduate from NYU, and um, his degree is in film from the the Tisch Tisch Film School, and so we might have to give him an assignment, an unpaid assignment. (laughs) (laughs) He could document that. Well, it's all in the family. 
Yeah, there you go. Right, exactly. All right, well, I, you know, we only have a few minutes left. It's really been great talking to you. Um, oh, thank uh, you so yeah, much. You are a really interesting person, your whole family, obviously, and your whole career. But, so let's get, but specifically so that readers and uh, listeners, uh, SusanWiggs.com is the website to go to. But any other websites or any other information that we can access that in regard to the book, obviously, and to you, Family Tree, Yes, um, it, it all starts at SusanWiggs.com, and on the on the opening page, there's all the um, social network icons. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads, Pinterest, um, Instagram. So whatever their preference is, whatever channel they prefer, they can click on that and instantly connect with me, which is way much, way too much fun. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Family Tree, you can buy bookstores online everywhere, listen to it yes, on. There are links I to buy it, yeah. on the website from anywhere, and please do visit your local, friendly, independent bookstore if you happen to have one near you. Are you going to be at any of those in, uh, within the next couple of weeks? Yes, I am. And so on the website, uh, there's one link called Events, and it has a list of the times, dates, and places where I will be visiting. So I encourage people to um, check that out, Um, particularly if you have listeners. um, Right now they're sending me to Dallas, Scottsdale, Cerrito, um, and Superior, Montana, and I haven't checked the schedule to see what's been added. So it's a changing, changing panorama there. Fantastic. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Susan Wiggs, New York Times bestselling author, and her book is Family Tree. Um, Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, a social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is author Jessica Joel Alexander, The Danish Way of Parenting, What the Happiest People in the World Know About Raising Confident, Capable Kids. Denmark has been voted the happiest country in the world for 40 consecutive years, most recently in the 2016 World Happiness Report. What is the secret to this consistent success? Jessica, with co-author and psychotherapist Eben Sandal, attribute this happiness to their upbringing. Happy kids grow up to make happy adults who raise happy kids, and the cycle continues. Uh, Jessica reveals a fresh take in her book on cross-cultural parenting advice, which will help parents from all walks of life raise the happiest, most well-adjusted kids in the world. Uh, She's an American columnist, resides in Europe with her Danish husband and two children. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jessica. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Okay, well, interesting book, and I'm a social worker, so I've read lots of books about parenting, obviously, and yours is kind of a very, it's unique, it's different, the Danish way of parenting. Um, I haven't seen any particular book that reflects specifically the Danish way of parenting, but what's so different about Danish parenting as opposed to American parenting? And I know you're American and your husband is Danish and you have two children, so you are an expert. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, I, I, I guess it started a long time ago when um, I went to Den- when I first went to Denmark and I saw the kids there and I really noticed how well behaved and calm and serene and happy they were um, and this really struck me because at the time I was really I was not a maternal person so um, I, I said to my husband if I can have a Danish child I'll sign up tomorrow for motherhood um, so it really it, they really it really stood out to me. But it wasn't until um, many years. But it stood out to you. I want to interrupt you because it stood out to you that these kids and you weren't a mother at the time, so you actually didn't necessarily want to become a mother. You weren't. You, but you saw that what they they were well behaved. They what they they interacted with. So respectful, so calm. You almost never hear yelling. There's no. Um, you know, back when you're younger and you don't want to have kids, you know, what you associate with kids is kind of rambunctious, you know, behavior and whatnot. And, that, you know, sometimes they can be difficult. And these kids just seemed so serene and lovely and happy. Um, and, yeah, so I, I really thought, gosh, this, this, this is the kind of kid I would like to have. So it's a different um, vibe, it, it, a different vibe, totally I guess. Totally different vibe, yeah. yeah. Okay, really because you're, you're touching, I mean, I didn't have kids till I was in my 30s, and I felt the same way. I had my career, I didn't want, and it was actually my ex-husband who said, well, it's time to have kids, you know, if you want to have them. But it was kind of like, mm-hmm. well, okay. And then, obviously, when I had them, it was great, but kind of for some of the reasons that you just described, you know, they, but anyway, okay, so go on. That was the yeah, first so introduction. Then, so when I had my daughter, when I was pregnant with my daughter, because I had this kind of fear of motherhood, I read mountains of parenting books to prepare myself. And yet when she was born, I found myself preferring all of my Danish family and friends' advice to the point where I stopped even going back to the books because I really liked what I was hearing. And then some years later, um, I was listening to my husband reframing my daughter's language, which is something we talk about in the book, he was speaking in Danish, but I understood what he was saying. And, um, and, 
at the same time, I was reading the happiness in the newspaper about the World Happiness Report, which where Denmark had been voted again the number one happiest people in the world. And it just clicked, like a light bulb went off in my head, and I said, oh, my God, there's a Danish way of parenting, and this is why they grew up to be so happy. So that's kind of where it began, and then from there, um, together with this Danish psychotherapist, we, we got a lot of research and studies to back up the, the sort of six-pillar idea of what it is they do differently. Uh, and we're going to talk about the six-pillar idea, but, um, but, but before we do that, because parenting is always obviously in the context of a culture, and so people can look at it and say, well, the Danish parent one way because of the Danish culture, the French parent one way because of the French culture. And here in the United States, you know, we have almost 350 million people. How can we be parenting even though the Danes are the happiest people in the world? And I don't know. I, we're not the least happy, but we're way down on the ladder. Yeah. I know that. I, I, I don't exactly know what the statistic is. But it's a totally different culture. So how does that fit in? Cause can you yeah, but be- that's, what's so, that's what's so fascinating about it, and that's what struck me, and that's really why I wanted to write the book because I, I knew – it helped me as an American. I knew it could help others. So what I did was not only did I look at myself as a parent, like my default settings, what I was raised with, so I had to question, you know, we all repeat what we've learned, basically, unless there's a dramatic awareness. But I, I didn't just look at myself as a parent. I also looked at myself as an American parent and what I believed was the right way because we are all affected by our culture and we don't see it. We're, it's so ingrained in us that we just think that's the right way. But what's really powerful is if you, if, you, if you are able to reflect on that and then look at another way and see if there's something to learn from it. And that's why I think this is so compelling because the teens are so happy and yet here we are in America searching for happiness. There's shelves of books on happiness and yet here's a country that's that's achieved it. So that was a really powerful motivator for me to really believe in this parenting model because, you know, the proof was in the pudding, so to speak. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, you, you look at Americans and, and I, you can understand. We are a culture where our unhappiness is reflected in our overeating, our drug addiction, um, or other addictions as well. And you, you can you can you can see it for whatever reasons. I mean, and I don't know if you know. I last time I was in Denmark was a long, long time ago. So, um, how when you look at the Danish people, um, do you not see that, or do they appear? Are they healthier? Yeah, just no, physically? but you know, you know, um, no, you don't see it. I mean, it is different. But um, you know, you asked earlier about how how the culture affects them and. What I want to say is I don't even live in Denmark, so I'm not saying that you have to even come from Denmark to get the effects from this. Like, I'm using the Danish philosophy of parenting someplace else, and it's really working. And I know a lot of other people have started using it, and it's really working. So because it has never escaped, in a way, this knowledge about the Danish way of parenting, um, no one's known about it. But it's, but it's not necessarily tied to the system, right, or Denmark. It's something we could implement here, too, and I think we would absolutely see knock-on effects, like positive changes. All right, because so it's really simple. It's, it's, it's simple stuff, you know? Okay, well, you have, it, you have an acronym, PARENT, and you go through each one of those, P-A-R-E-N-T. We can start with the P, which is the beginning, I guess, or it's, it's one of the components of, Danish, of the Danish way of parenting. What's the P? What does it stand for, and how do we use it when we're raising our kids? Okay. Right, well, P is for play, 
also free play. Um, so in Denmark, play is seen as crucial, not optional for children's development. We're starting to talk about it a lot more in America, you know, how we've sort of play has declined a lot in place of a lot of uh, courses and developing our children, and we want to educate our children. Whereas in Denmark, since 1871, play has been seen as, a, as an educational theory. So they, they believe that children learn so much from play that it's the number one priority for a parent that their kids get enough free play. In America, and free play, I think, and I want to say, because I think that's critical because you say this in the book, free play is not, well, we have play dates, we have play, that structured play and how to play and what to play with. That's not what you're talking about. No, 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 because it's what they benefit from, what kids benefit from this free play is, is the fact that they're in control of their lives. Like they control what they do. Whereas so often now it's parents that are controlling what their kids are doing. Like give and, us an example of a free, playing freely. Yeah, I mean, freely. take them out. Take, first of all, get rid of the technology. Take them out to the forest. Go to the beach. Put out some boxes on the floor. You know, it doesn't have to be an educational thing. And I think that's the loop we get into here in America is that we always feel like we need to be, you know, preparing our kids for the future, for education or something. So we're, we're kind of educating them younger and younger. And free play is really about letting the kids decide and letting them use their imagination And although we're seeing now the research is showing that play is teaching kids empathy, social skills, coping mechanisms, many, many things, even though we see this, I think that because we can't measure it, we're not convinced. Because in America, we like to measure things to prove that it works, you know? But but what what also is fascinating, I think, about the Danish way is that here we have a society where they're clearly very happy and they implement play, so I think that's compelling evidence that it works. Well, and I think some of the things I think what you just mentioned are really cr- critical, like empathy and connectedness and um, creativity, if you're allowed to play freely as you're describing it, uh, are all nourished. And we're really not doing that. Um, we're just into the in America, this competitive, measurable if he does better in baseball and is on the baseball team and the team wins, then he's going to get into Harvard 20 right. years from now. Yeah. And, right. and, this, and this, is, this, causes, this causes anxiety for kids because the parents are pressured. The parents feel anxiety to do these things, and the kids mirror that. And I think the thing with free play, that one of the part of the Danish philosophy that I always keep in my mind is that kids need to feel good even when they're not performing because this is what builds self-esteem, that they feel good inside for who they are, not just for what they're doing, you know? Not, not just for their external accomplishments. Is yes. Not, yeah. And, and there's a word that comes out in your book, uh, resiliency, and I think that's mm-hmm. really critical, and that this, as you're describing the Danish way of parenting, which is the title of the book, uh, and free play encourages that as well. You, we become, or they become, more resilient adults, because I think resiliency is really critical. Um, isn't that what Darwin talked about? Survival of the fittest really meant the people who could adapt the best, which really kind of equates to a, uh, resiliency. How resilient can we be? Um, so oh, it's, I, it's a huge factor, and, and actually it, resiliency is something they learned so much in play. Something else kids do in play is they're putting themselves into um, fearful situations. So like, actually if you look at animal playing, animals playing, you see monkeys and you know, dogs, they, they put themselves into fight or flight 
positions or, you know, they hang from trees. And, and what they're doing is they're, they're, put, they're trying to see how much they can handle of fear, right? And this is what also what kids are learning in, in play because what this does is they learn how much stress they can handle and they kind of self-regulate it, which makes them much better at dealing with anxiety later in life. So it's, it's amazing some of these knock-on effects that kids actually get from free play. But again, because we can't measure it, and basically nobody's earning money off of it, um, it's not so prevalent. And I think a lot of parents feel lazy letting their kids play, which is, again, this mind shift. It's the cultural mind shift to realize, wait a minute, it's not the lazy choice. It's actually the educated choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, that You have to look at the, I mean, if we start looking at some of these statistics, which kind of... Uh, follow up on what you're saying is if you let if if what we do is we're structuring our kids before they're five years old, which is the opposite of what you're saying. Not allowing free play, not allowing them to make their own decisions and and get to feel what makes them feel comfortable or how much they can handle. So they get to school and and by the time they're six or seven, they're on medication because they're hyperactive or they're overactive or underact whatever it is they're not performing the way they should be performing so what we're doing isn't working i guess is what i'm saying and that that's of what you, what you're talking well, what, about one of the things we talk about in the book as well is yeah, this thing about labeling right so i think in america as a um a part of our culture, again, if, if we're taking on our cultural glasses, we have a tendency to label here. It's almost, I almost feel like sometimes we're looking for the label of kids or even adults, right? Like, it's all, I almost feel like it's weird if you don't have a label, you know, uh, you know, what some kind of disorder or problem or, or whatever. Whereas in Denmark, they, they, don't, they don't jump to labels with kids because they, they know that this can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, and instead they're looking for the meaning behind the behavior and trying to work on that or find the more positive side of a label, right? So if someone's, you know, distracted, they might say, well, but they're very artistic, and they'll focus on building that up rather than they becoming ADHD or something. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. I'm saying sometimes we throw those labels around so casually that it, you know, it's, it's not good for the ones that really, really have this problem, and, and that's kind of a cultural tendency we can have. Yeah. Kind of honing in on the negative when there's a lot of positive stuff we could hone yeah, in on as well. Yeah, that's the reframing chapter. Yeah, that's the reframing chapter that we talk about that Danes do naturally. They don't go into labeling, and they're constantly reinterpreting situations to be a little more positive, and that includes with their kids. And they teach their kids this skill. That's that thing I told you. I, was, I saw my husband doing it with our daughter, and I realized, wow, she's going to grow up to do this naturally, and that's going to change her whole experience of life to be better. Now, when you watched or saw your husband interacting with your daughter, I'm assuming that that's something now you've obviously written the book, but incorporated into your parenting, or are you standing outside watching your husband do it all? No, no, no. I I, I still go to him sometimes. I'm not going to, like, when I'm I'm at my wit's end and my default settings are coming in big time, I get help. But we also recommend in the book that, you know, it helps to have a partner on board you know, with the Danish way or whatever your values are, it's, it's always good to have help if you can because we're only human. Um, but, um, but no, I think reframing has been the chapter that really changed me the most as a person because it made me examine all the labels that I had from my childhood, you know, and it's amazing how much we think of ourselves as adults has been carried over to us from what was said of us as children. 
and what really it's hard to let you go of that. that. It's re- don't you think, as a parent? Uh, for me, it is, or and even as they're adults, because uh, you know, in each life cycle, to kind of let go of all that stuff. As you talk about, and I want you to talk more about like the default, uh, mm-hmm. our default behavior. What is the default behavior for those who don't know what that is? What does default that mean? Settings. Well, you know, in a computer, you have default settings, right? Yeah. So when you get the computer, that's what is on there. And if you want to change it, you have to reconfigure it. Or you make it go back to the, the motherboard, like what the default settings are when you buy the computer. That's what's in there. And what I think are default settings as parents, and like I said, I really reflected on this on myself when I was pregnant and I gave birth, um, was, okay, what am I programmed from my own parents to do naturally? What do I believe about disciplining? What do I believe about, you know, child-rearing? Um, and where do these beliefs come from? And the thing is, is that it would be great if parents would think about this a little bit earlier because what happens is nobody knows how hard it's going to be. Nobody knows what sleep deprivation means. You, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get into it and you're like, oh, my God, I'm insane. Yeah. And oh, when you're insane, oh, well, what have I done? I remember thinking, what did I do? I'm never going to sleep well, you know, again. You, you know, you go to moments where you're borderline yeah. crazy because yeah. sleep deprivation does that. And what happens when you're at that level, you turn to your default settings. Because that's, that's your motherboard. That's what you were programmed with from your own parents and from our culture. So, so that's why um, having this talk, you know, looking into what your default settings are and making a decision, wait a minute, this is actually how I want to parent. So I just think, you know, by talking about these big lines of parenting, if you want to have a respect-based parenting practice or whatever it is, you know, you have to be aware of it. Otherwise, when you get to these crazy moments, you just do what you're programmed to do. Now, I, we've only, we, we started out with, you've got the parenting, P-A-R-E-N-T, so and we're not going to get through all of the, uh, of, of the acronym today, but I want to, let's go on to next, authenticity, because what does that mean in terms of parenting, authenticity? Why, how, how does that make us better parents and raise happier kids? Well, first of all, I think it starts with ourselves. So we have to get authentic with who we are. And I think that's something also from the American culture. We, you know, we go shopping, we eat, we do a lot of things that kind of take us away from who we are and what we feel. And Danes are just really um, honest and direct with their kids. So there's no such thing as like a taboo subject. If in an age-appropriate way, Danes will talk to their kids about everything in a non-dramatic way. And a lot of their stories, they don't have a happy ending. Um, you know, they're not afraid to have sad or ambiguous or tragic stories that they read to their kids. And while at first I was really shocked by this when my husband read some stories to my daughter. All right, what stories? Give us an example. Because I know Americans... Actually, this builds resilience because kids don't get shocked by life's ups and downs. And it builds empathy. So, um, for example, do you know the story of the Little Mermaid? I do. And the Little Mermaid okay. is the statue that's in Copenhagen, isn't it? Right. Yeah. yeah, right. Okay, so the famous Little Mermaid. So it's a Danish story. Most people think that she gets the prince and lives happily ever after because that's Disney's interpretation. But the actual story is she doesn't get the prince. She dies of sadness and turns into sea foam. So um, I read both versions to my daughter, and she really preferred the sad version because it opened up all of this interesting discussion, and it was very connecting. So I think sometimes it's the adults that have a harder time with difficult emotions than the kids. The kids can handle it, you know? 
Uh, I can give you an example of that. I was talking to a friend who uh, decided they weren't. I, I live in New York City. Um, and part of the time, and uh, uh, Ground Zero, there's a new museum, the um, uh, you know the 9/11 museum, um, and one of my friends said, well, they wouldn't take their two kids there because it's too sad, it's too painful, and they wouldn't be able to handle it. And I think that's an example of what you're talking about. And obviously, yeah. it's part of our history. I, it, it's something exactly. that they need to be aware of. They I think their kids would handle it well, and they're the ones who somehow are the ones who can't handle it or can't handle sharing that experience with their kids. That's it. That's exactly what it is. And, I mean, actually, there's some things that Danes expose their kids to, which we would really, I mean, really be shocked by. But that is a perfect example of a Dane would take their kids to that and, and, and also they would watch their children if they, you know, if, if there was ever a problem, you know, they would let their kid decide. They wouldn't decide to protect them, you know, because they don't feel like kids, you don't, they don't feel like you need to protect kids from reality because they think, you know, reality is also something kids need to learn about. And reality is not just happy endings or happiness, you know. And do you think, Jessica, also, I mean, other examples of that very often, parents won't take kids to funerals. They can't go to grandma or grandpa's funeral or whomever, even if it's a friend or whoever the person is, because the parents feel in the United States they can't handle it without realizing, and I think you point this out in your book, that if you go with them and you're part of their experiencing, like going to a funeral, um, that you can help them process that. And then Absolutely. so when they have to experience, yeah, have to when they have to. In an empathic and gentle way, you know, that kids can handle it and they, they know when something's wrong. They know when you're hiding something or protecting. They're so, you know, aware. Um, so I, like I said, this is cultural. And I think if we worked on being aware of that, we would see, it just you got to start working on ourselves in terms of being okay with with it first, you know, and then and then bring the kids in just in a non-dramatic way. I think sex is another area that we have difficulty with, and we're not doing well in that in the United States. I mean, we have uh, this is dealing with our children when we're talking about sex is uh, just just say no or, I mean, celibacy and, and all of those things don't work and we don't start at a very, very young age talking about sex, all kinds of sex, whatever it is with our kids. And that's a huge issue, I think, here. And it's, and it's very different in uh, in Denmark or in the way that parents talk to their kids about sex. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I, I remember, my, so his family often gives us books, right? And um, one time my husband was reading my daughter a book. Um, I didn't even know what it was, but I, I heard it from outside the door. And, uh, you know, I heard, I heard some terminology. My daughter was five, but I sort of, my jaw dropped, you know. And, um, and I came, I, you know, I came to see what the book was. And the book was basically talking about, you know, how, how babies are made, but not in any hidden way. Because actually, Danes don't have different um, words for you know, genitalia, it's basically, it is called what it's called, and there's no special names because they don't feel the need that it, it should be taboo. You know, they think also in an age-appropriate way, kids need to learn about where babies are coming from and, and all of those things. And this was a big shock for me because I come from a prudish family. But, you know, over time, also the more I've studied it, I really think it's a better way because kids grow up to have you know, more understanding and self-esteem and, again, not get shocked by what they learn outside. Not only do they not get shocked, they realize as they, be, as they get more information that their 
parents or guardians were telling them the truth. Because as you get older and if you've been given these crazy names for penis or vagina, you, what were they talking about? You know, why did, wasn't I told the truth about actually procreation and how, how babies are born and all those kinds of things? So you, parents get yes, more credibility if they tell the truth. And that's a big thing with the Danish parenting. There's so much respect for children's sort of personal integrity, and it creates this, this respect that really carries over into, you know, the teen years. Um, and, yeah, giving, giving, even giving accurate names to to your genitalia is it has been proven to help like if kids ever get into trouble with uh, if something bad happens to them you know they're much it's much easier for them to explain what has happened because they know the proper terms and there's it's, there's never been shame that's the key there's no shame around it in Denmark and and what? I think that's what we're missing here we, we have to stop having shame around just very normal real things that happen in life we have come to the end of the half hour and uh, it's been really Great talking to you. Very informative. I want to make sure uh, uh, that my uh, listeners know that I want to repeat the name of the book, The Danish Way of Parenting, Jessica Alexander. Uh, you can buy the book, Amazon, bookstores everywhere, online, and just quickly, we've got 30 seconds, a website that we can go to to, to find out more about you and the book. Yep, um, my author site is jessicajewelalexander.com where you can find events and whatnot, and then thedanishway.com has more information about the book and, and uh, topics around that. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zoxer. Yep. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480 294 